Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. And the topics discussed are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. <laughs> the energy from our outstanding producer shannon snellgrove shannon so excited to have you how are things going they are just dandy so good uh, <laughs> yeah. i mean uh, well, out with dr latif tonight so you know what a good. guy what a guy we had this was a great time and and very grateful to have you as a producer for the show uh i am also joined tonight by chris the chu man chu chris how we doing Doing fantastic this beautiful night. Excellent. And and I am Justin Burke, but we had a outstanding guest tonight, Dr. Hussein Abdul Latif, coming back for round two, teaching us about diabetic ketoacidosis this round. Um, before we share some of the amazing things we learned from him, Chris, yeah. tell us what we do on the show. Oh, yeah, that's right. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And we had the pleasure of welcoming back Dr. Hussein Abdul-Latif, more commonly referred to as Dr. Latif. He is a pediatric endocrinologist at Children's of Alabama and a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Alabama School of Medicine in Birmingham, Alabama. He is a dedicated clinician educator at UAB by serving as the co-director for the pediatrics clerkship, through which he is the recipient of numerous teaching awards. Dr. Latif taught us the diagnostic criteria of DKA, some general treatment approach, and some sweet pearls. I, there was a couple that I took away, the checking the phosphorus for individuals with type 2 diabetes that wound up in DKA was one huge pearl that I had never heard. Yeah. And then he also shared one of the tips of starting uh, basal insulin before doing the insulin drip. Those are just a couple that uh, I think were exciting things in the show. Mm -hmm. uh, without further ado, let's just get to it, guys. Woo! Woo! I'm ready to close this major gap in my knowledge. It's like an anion gap. Just not with bicarb. I think you do a great job at it. Well, I'm very grateful that you are joining us again because the diabetes episode was a huge hit and I think very good. And we're very, very lucky to, to have you back and uh, to talk about a topic DKA. Before we get into the content, though, you've already given us a one-liner in the last episode of Diabetes, but can you remind the listeners who you are as, as, a, as a person, as an educator, and, and introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Hussein Abdullatif. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist based at UAB, University of Alabama at Birmingham, and I've been there for 20 years. I have lots of little hobbies not related to medicine. I love history. I love languages. I love looking at old uh, court records from different places that I that are available to me, and I like swimming. I was never good at sports. I was always kicked out of any team that you know that that they didn't want me on soccer or whatever team they are. But I'm good now in swimming, so I'm proud. I'm terrible. I, mean, I tried to pick up swimming as soon as I, I moved to Providence, and it has been uh, an uphill swim for me. You'll you'll get it. Just All right. stay at it. You got it. I'll keep working at it. So 
thanks for being back with us. And since we asked you kind of our normal questions last time, we figured we'd mix it up a little bit. Um, And especially with 2020 being such a rough year last year, we kind of want to keep it light. Is there anything that really was just a great part of your 2020? Well, you, you end up spending a good bit of time at the house. And so you, you end up like picking up little habits. Like I said, you know, looking at old court records that I have available for me. Uh, and then one of my big hobbies pre-COVID was to eat breakfast on Saturday and Sunday at a nice um, at a nice bakery and drink my coffee and eat my croissant. And then all that was gone. So I had to start making my own croissants and and I, I'm, I'm proud of that. It's like doing something that's really difficult that I've never made before. So my greatest maybe thing I learned in 2020 is that I can do things I never thought I could do. Croissants is no joke. Like I, I have, I would say I'm a baker and I really like to bake, but I have never conquered croissants because that is a huge ordeal. Yeah. Huh. I didn't know that. Although- all the folding and lamination and stuff like that. It's difficult. Yeah. You do like a full puff, a full puff pastry, or do you do the rough puff? No, I do the full puff. I tried the rough puff. It was rougher than the regular puff. It takes a long time to make croissants, so I have the utmost respect for that. Yeah, that's kind of another thing I learned is I have to be patient. That's a lesson <laughs> we can all learn from the croissant. <laughs> yes. I'm also very curious about time. this court record thing. How, how do you yeah. do that? Or what are you looking at? <laughs> so it's, uh, yes, so kind of like my family is originally from Jerusalem. And uh, in Jerusalem, the, the Ottoman Empire was in control of it. And they do have all the court records from the 1500s until the early 1900s uh, preserved. So I was trying to kind of look my family record, my family history. And, and I got to be lucky to have access to some of those records. And so basically I've been going through divorces, inheritance, lawsuits, wow. um, which is very good. Like one thing that will be eventually another um, thing is kind of like, I, I'm very interested in where the women, uh, how they navigated, like my great grandmothers and great, 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 great grandmothers, how they navigated the court system and the court records. Um, in Jerusalem over the last 400 years. Wow. Any big surprises that you uncovered? Well, you know, some of them were really strong women. Um, Like my 12th grandmother, she divorced her husband and sued everybody in town, basically, in the year 1558. So I think the judge was basically sick of seeing her. Wow. Wow. It's so funny that you mentioned this. Weirdly and coincidentally, I recently did an exploration to find an old court record in um i have a lot of interest in correctional health and yeah oh yeah and there's a supreme court case estelle v gamble that was in the 1970s that is the ultimately went to the supreme court and was ruled that health care is a human right for those who are incarcerated or it's a constitutional right for those who are incarcerated Hmm. and it was created um the original suit was or the initial complaint was pro se meaning it was a jailhouse individual defending himself Hmm. in a handwritten um complaint to the court. And I went and I found the handwritten complaint. And it's amazing because it's a major part of the history. And it was actually very difficult to find. Yeah, it, it, I think it's um, it, it's a very interesting thing to kind of look at. Court, and those are really handwritten. So it's they are really hard to read sometimes. Yeah. I've, yeah. Nice. All right. Go. Um, 
let's get to the case. And so Shannon, do you want to, you want to start us off with uh, our yeah, first case absolutely. from Cash so, Life Children's? We're at Cash Luck Children's and we have a nine-year-old girl who comes in. Um, Katie Kusmal is her name and she has no significant past medical history. Um, and she presents to the primary care clinic with nausea and vomiting for two days. She's also been complaining of some mild abdominal pain that started this morning. Her mom says that she's been eating and drinking less but is urinating adequately. And her vital signs and exam are completely unremarkable, except for the fact that she has lost about three kilos since her last clinic visit about six months ago. So we would just like you to kind of talk us through what you're thinking about um, with Katie coming in here like this and what labs do we need to get, if any, can we, you know, send her home? Does she need to be admitted? All those things. Yeah, it's a really very interesting thing. And, and that's kind of one of the challenges related to catching diabetes before they get into DKA or stuff like that is that their complaints are very um, generic and, uh, and, and, you know, one can easily dismiss it as this or that and all these things. Well, one of the worries, like in, in her case that I don't like, is that she lost weight over the last six months, um, which kids are not supposed to lose weight. They, they may, you know, sometimes families will say, well, this one, this kid lost weight because he's in puberty. Well, puberty doesn't make you lose weight. It may stretch you out where you look skinnier, but you're gaining weight. Uh, and and so, so the loss of weight over like from the six months before of about three kilograms is to me is pretty significant. That makes me kind of have a little bit higher degree of suspicion about there's something a little bit bigger going on, you know, rather than dismiss it as gastroenteritis or something like that. Another question maybe I would ask in, in this case, and I worry about it, is kind of someone who's vomiting, but there is no diarrhea. Um, and and so, so if you're having some vomiting, but no diarrhea, then you start worrying, uh, is this truly a gastroenteritis or is there something more going on which it could be like you know intestinal obstruction um the, it, it could be a, a uti and it could be dk for patients that come in with these non-specific symptoms when are you thinking of getting a quick glucose i remember i had a mentor or a professor or a teacher in residency uh eric belidian who it was very simple but always taught me he said always did a glucose whether the emergency room primary care or if you're bumping into someone in the mall, just always get a glucose because you don't want to miss it. What are your thoughts? Is that kind of your first go-to? And then what is the the big red flag that makes you want to... I think getting a glucose is a good one, but maybe even like in, in a situation like this, I would like to look at a urinalysis because um, urinalysis actually can give us like lots of different little things. For example... Um, if someone is vomiting for three days um, and you do a urinalysis, you expect to see ketones in the urine, um, but you don't expect to see glucose. But if you did the urine and you found glucose and ketones, then even without drawing blood, you're you're, you're having something really significant going on. Um, but I, you never go wrong by obtaining a glucose. Um, where sometimes I hesitate is giving a glucose meter to an undiagnosed patient to the family to to check the glucose that sometimes it may drive them crazy because they get a normal blood sugar and then they may overthink it. Well, it's normal now, but it will be high again. And then they start checking and checking and checking and checking and getting nowhere. And as far as a typical presentation of DKA, is this more commonly seen patients coming in with altered mental status or some mild stomach pain or incidental finding? What, 
What's the typical symptoms or what's the typical presentation of DKA clinically? Yeah, yeah that's a really good question. I mean, it, it can um, vary. Uh, it can come with someone who's like urinating a lot and drinking a lot and you're suspecting diabetes, but when you're obtaining your labs, you'll find maybe not necessarily the, the more severe forms of DKA, but you will have a bicarb of 12 or 13 or something like that. So a milder form of DKA for that one. There's not yet any change in level of consciousness or something like that. Others will have clearly that last name of Kusmol, uh, you know, fitting very well with them. And, and they're breathing really hard, breathing really fast, and, and their bicarb will be much lower. And then um, we've had people that actually arrived at the emergency room before any treatment with uh, altered level of consciousness because of brain edema. Um, so so that, that did happen. That particular case that I, that's now on my mind is something that happened when I was a fellow. And, um, and I will share it with you because it's, it's a lesson I never will forget. So it's a child with Down syndrome. So there's like an altered uh, you know, perceptions and stuff like that, very young. And the kid was vomiting over the weekend uh, and the mother was calling the pediatrician, but the pediatrician was falsely reassured because the urine output was always good. So he, the pediatrician would ask the mother, she said, well, he's urinating. Then, oh, then he's fine, you know, not dehydrated. By Monday morning, the kid actually came in, in a situation that kid ended up passing away. Wow. So mm-hmm. for for these patients who are presenting, what what's what's the typical time course that they're having symptoms before they finally come in really sick? Can it vary? Can they be perfectly fine one week and then within like two or three days they can quickly decompensate and show up? Or can this be something that you know you're saying that sometimes they have some very benign symptoms that you may not realize at first? Can this be going on for weeks and months before they actually present to the doctor? So, so they may have some symptoms suggesting maybe they have diabetes before, uh, kind of like polyuria, polydipsia, loss of weight um, over a certain period of time. And then the, the hard part for families, and some of them are like medically inclined, is because everything sneaks up on them. Um, and so they are not exactly right for a period of time. And then eventually they show something, as in they start vomiting, therefore they, they seek medical advice or or they start acting funny as in like a decreased level of consciousness and therefore they come. But generally in type 1 diabetes, the presentation would be within three months of the beginning of the, of the symptoms. And, and eventually it will shout at us with diabetic ketoacidosis. Our aim as pediatric endocrinologists, but also as uh, practitioners in general, is to try to catch diabetes before they develop diabetic ketoacidosis. So kind of how to teach families in general to catch those symptoms and pay attention to them a little early. And, uh, and very much like what you're saying, Justin, check glucose uh, you know, with the least suspicion as a physician uh, where maybe we can catch it early too. Yeah. So two days later, um, Katie presents to the ER Cash Like Children's ER after her symptoms have not improved. Her mother notes that she's been acting funny since this morning, and ultimately she becomes unresponsive just prior to presenting to the ED. On exam, Katie is lethargic. Her mucous membranes are dry, and she has poor skin turgor. You also note that she's breathing really rapidly and deeply, and her vitals show that she's afebrile with a heart rate of 120, blood pressure of 85 over 55, 
she's breathing 35 times a minute and she's satting 96%. And her, you get a VBG, it shows a pH of 6.91 and a PCO2 of 14.8. Her sodium is 147 with a potassium of 4.9. Her chloride is 114. Her bicarb is less than five. And her BUN is 29 with a creatinine of 1.1. We also get a glucose that shows she has a glucose of 775 and her anion gap is calculated to be approximately 29. So Katie's very sick. Is Katie in DKA or what is the actual definition criteria of DKA? So one of the things is the diabetes. So you have to have a diagnosis of diabetes. And uh, traditionally speaking, in the past, we would say that you have to have high blood sugars to have diabetic ketoacidosis. Lately, that may be changing, but we'll talk about that later. Um, the, uh, so, so you have to have high blood glucose. You have to have acidosis. Um, and acidosis is defined with a bicarb level of below 15 in order to call it diabetic ketoacidosis. There are some people that would say, you know, what about a bicarb below 18, which is considered lowish bicarb? then uh, some, some would call it diabetic ketoacidosis, other may not. It becomes like more of an issue of semantics. Um, but for us, you know, I guess the question is like, when do you start an insulin drip and, uh, and, and go with the diabetic ketoacidosis pathway? And, and I would probably go with it whenever the bicarb is below 15, then I'd put them on an, on an insulin drip. So if you have this parent who's now in, in, the, uh, in the ER with, with you and you're sort of getting these labs back and you're sort of like, oh, this patient's probably in diabetic ketoacidosis. How, how are you explaining this to you know, the parents, to the patient, if you know they're old enough to be able to understand? How, how are you explaining this to them? Yeah, so that, that certainly would be hard because this is a, a, sick, a, a kid who's sick and, and who's not doing very well. So I'll, you know, I'll sit by them. I'll, I'll really want to know um, their their level of anxiety or lack of anxiety or where they are. And uh, because uh, this is not necessarily a time to talk in great detail about things, but it's more of kind of like to be there for them, to be reassuring, but without giving them false hopes. Um, so, so basically what I would say, very much like we said before, is that this is a kid who has diabetes and because of the diabetes and the lack of insulin, they ended up accumulating acid in their system. And that acid is playing a role in making them sick and coming to the hospital in this situation. And at this point, I'll say we are in a critical situation, but we're very hopeful that we will get it, we'll get out of it by using our insulin and fluids and, uh, and treatment. And kind of leave it at that. If they are like hitting themselves with feeling of guilt, then I will try to kind of get the guilt a little bit out of the way uh, as much as we can. Um, the, so, so kind of like we'll have to work with them with their own state of mind and, and where they are. What if the, the parents saying, well, does this mean they're a type 1 or type 2 diabetic? If they ask you, like, will they be diabetic for the rest of their lives? How are you explaining that to them at that time? Yeah. So, you know, it's so interesting um, because then at, at that time, it becomes not necessarily very important to call it type 1 or type 2. But I would say uh, at this point, they need insulin no matter what. Whether it's type 1 or type 2, we'll figure it out. The people who have DKA are mostly type 1, but type, people with type 2 diabetes can get DKA as well. 
and they have their own little risk factors that we have to pay attention to. Uh, so, so kind of like the big thing I would say is that, yes, they will need insulin at this point. We will need to be uh, intensive in the insulin treatment. And then kind of like as time passes and as time moves, we will work together with them. Is it for life? Then I would basically say it's for life because whether it's type one or type two, it is for life. You know, type two diabetes, you may end up not necessarily taking medications, but I like to still call it that you have diabetes because I don't want us to forget that that risk is decreased because we we changed our lifestyle and stuff like that, but it never goes away. So once things go back, it comes back. And what is it about DKA that makes it so critically ill and sick? Is it the is it the high glucose? Is it the acidosis? Is it the dehydration? Why do we really worry about these kids and why can they, you know, potentially die from DKA? Yeah. So diabetes, diabetic ketoacidosis certainly can kill. Uh, and um, some of the potential mortality from it is like some, some people would say 4% to 6%. So it's a pretty significant risk for mortality. And the reasons for people to die, one is that kind of they come in shock, you know, so, so it's a shock at presentation. This patient is presenting in kind of a picture of shock. The blood pressure is low, the heart rate is high, you know, all that stuff. The other one is the risk uh, for brain edema that, that can happen with diabetic ketoacidosis and can happen not necessarily because of treatment, although treatment may play a role in it, but it can happen at the time of presentation. So, so, uh, so DKA itself is a risk for brain edema, and that is certainly uh, a killer. And the third one is uh, electrolyte imbalance that can happen with it. So uh, hypokalemia can be a killer. Um, hyperkalemia, much less than hypokalemia as a killer. Uh, so, uh, so those like three factors are playing a role in it. They do have in addition to the ketones that are playing a role in ketoacidosis, they also have lactic acidosis because of decreased perfusion. And so, so that's kind of related to the shock factor. And I'd like to ask a question specifically about those electrolyte abnormalities. I've had a couple of cases where the pH has been falsely reassuring uh, in a patient with DKA when they have a concurrent metabolic alkalosis from dehydration or contraction alkalosis. Is that something that I remember being just one of the cases that has stuck with me for a long time where after we gave fluids, it almost looked like the, the pH got worse. Is that something that happens frequently when people are urinating yeah. a lot because of diabetes and DKA? It, it certainly can happen where as if there's more acid inside the cells and as you hydrate them a little bit, the acid comes out of the cells and therefore, you know, briefly and transiently, the acidosis may look worse for a while before it gets better. Yeah. We kind of talked briefly about how Katie was breathing really deeply and, and rapidly. Can you kind of just talk us through why patients in DKA often um, have that characteristic deep and rapid breathing? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of like um, when we have acidosis, uh, which is basically what they have, we end up breathing much more rapidly in order to clear CO2, in order to try to correct some of that acidosis. And I think in, in that blood gas that you mentioned, Shannon, the CO2 level was 14, which is a pretty low level. Uh, and that kind of tells me two things is that, well, she has very good lungs uh, and she's breathing really hard to wash that CO2 and try her own best way to correct that acidosis. The breathing center in our brain, uh, acidosis is a, is a trigger to the breathing center to make us breathe faster. 
Now, looking at the get blood gas, and you're, we're, we're looking at you're talking about the CO2 and maybe a respiratory uh, alkalosis that we're trying to compensate. Is it mm-hmm. how important is it to go after a ABG versus a VBG? Is VBG just as good? Generally, we use VBG. Uh, we, we, we rarely need to use an ABG. I mean, as long as we're having pulse oximetry that reads and it's good, we're fine. We generally, in, in diabetic ketoacidosis, we're not that worried about oxygenation. They seem to be breathing okay. So, so I can live with VBG. If, if you're okay with the VBG, then I'm okay with the VBG. I don't know. It's a free country. I mean, <laughs> and for those of our listeners who are sort of interested in this, uh, Josh Farkas has a great uh, blog called Pomcrit. He's part of the EMCrit consortium, and he's got a nice uh, discussion about VBG versus ABG. And pretty much, if your if your oxygenation, your venous O2 is greater than seventy five percent, pretty much the VBG is just like the ABG. So uh, we can put that in the show note for our listeners. Oh, cool! Thank you. I that's a. I like that. Before we get into too much of the treatment, what happened to Katie? What are the triggers that put someone into DKA? Why Why does she have DKA? What would happen? I mean, the big thing that happened to her is that she doesn't have insulin or she, she has very little insulin. And uh, and that's kind of like the beginning of the process is the, the lack of insulin. Uh, therefore, we're not using the, the glucose. And because we're not using the glucose, then we end up breaking our fat and uh, accumulation of ketone bodies as a breakdown of our fat. Uh, There is a theory, probably correct, that with the lack of insulin, for some reason, we increase our production of glucagon, and glucagon starts working on gluconeogenesis and increases even more the glucose in, in our system and more breakdown of fat, and therefore adds another danger level to the, uh, to, to the accumulation of ketones. Um, the other thing that happens with her with the lack of insulin is that her glucose is high. And because the glucose is high, then she's urinating more and she's not able to keep up. So she is dehydrated. And with dehydration, especially when it comes to a level that's pretty significant, then she ends up having some problem with her circulation, some kind of mild shock or compensated shock, and she will have some accumulation of lactic acid at the same time. So with DKA, oftentimes, it's not only ketone bodies playing a role in the acidosis. Lactate would be another factor. Now, is there something that happened that produced, that caused her to stop producing insulin all of a sudden? Like, can it happen just like that? Or is this something that that oh. she was prone prone towards? Or did she possibly have an infection that proposed that, that got her to the spot? The natural history of type 1 diabetes is that you lose your production of the um, islet cells. And when you lose 80% of it, then, you, then you're at risk of having diabetes. And then if you lose even more, then you, you may get into diabetic ketoacidosis. Your question is really hard, uh, Chris, um, when I think about it, because like, what is the threshold of insulin that can get you into DKA? Um, and it's kind of, it's more of a, that interaction of, of lack of insulin and rise in glucagon that, you know, that may be playing a role in it. And certainly uh, a triggering factor can be, can be present, like, you know, a recent infection that increases your metabolic rate or metabolic demands and stuff like that uh, plays a role in it. But oftentimes, really, when I come to see us with DKA and they're recently diagnosed, it's just nothing else, you know, they, they just have it. 
You mentioned infections. Are there other triggers to DKA? Uh, maybe I guess probably not taking the insulin. Are there other big things that can? I mean, the, the big thing is not taking it. Well, or uh, so like one of my partners who's uh, who's not from the south, so he's a little more blunt in his uh, mm-hmm. uh, the way he talks to our southern patients, and he will say like you know, ninety nine percent is that's for people who are diagnosed with diabetes and come with DKA. And they would say, yeah, I had a cold and blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, it's, you didn't take your insulin. Now, it could be that they actually go through the moves of taking insulin, but they still don't take it. So people who have needle phobia, for example, are at higher risk for diabetic ketoacidosis, probably because of uh, something in their technique makes the insulin not go through. Um, there are some articles um, that I read about some women, it's in the background of relatively poor control of diabetes, but they will have a DKA when they are menstruating. So kind of menstruation increases their insulin resistance on top of that relatively not great control and then puts them into diabetic ketoacidosis. Another big factor is if you're on an insulin pump as a regimen, then you're at higher risk of having diabetic ketoacidosis. If you are not taught very well into uh, troubleshooting with problems with the pump. So, so that's something that they need to be very aware of. And so let me ask, for Katie here, who's coming in, looking pretty sick, lethargic, hypotensive, low pH, low bicarb, I would worry about you know needing for her to go to the ICU. How, how do you triage these patients, though? What is it that makes you think this patient needs to go in the ICU, or does everyone on DKA need to be in an intensive care setting? Yeah, so... Well, I will share with you, like here at Children's Hospital in Birmingham, the, we had a meeting uh, between the ICU team and the endocrinology team, and we decided what criteria there are to send someone to the, to the ICU. And, and one of those criteria is if you're less than two years old, uh, if you have a pH below 7.1, uh, if you received insulin as a bolus uh, in outside emergency room or something like that, with the idea that those are more risky patients, and, and so, so you'll have to decide, you know, who goes to that. Now, what that means, uh, here at Children's Hospital, we can take care in not a regular floor, but in a step-down unit, what we call the special care unit, with diabetic ketoacidosis, but that are not as sick or, or suspicion of sickness uh, in there. So every patient with DKA needs a one-on-one nursing because they will need insulin drip. And, uh, and so it depends on where, where we are. Uh, some hospitals, they can provide one-on-one nursing outside of the ICU. Other hospitals, the only player, place they do that is in an ICU. And if that's the case, then that patient needs to go to, to that ICU. So could you briefly kind of explain the, the three pillars of DKA treatment or the DKA pathway, as it's called some places? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, it's um, fluids insulin, electrolytes. So the fluids, the the question is kind of, well, one question would be what kind of fluids do you want to give? And, you know, people becomes like, you know, political parties or stuff like that. People become like very passionate about the fluids they want to use. 
the, the general advice is that you want to use isotonic solutions, which normal saline, the 0.9% uh, normal saline is an isotonic solution. The potential issue with it is that if you add potassium and you add other things that people add to it, then it's actually more than isotonic. So the 0.45, which is half normal saline, would be not isotonic, but if you add the KCL and KFOS or whatever, then it becomes actually uh, very close to an isotonic solution. And then there are people who love, you know, lactated ringers. The idea about it is that you're you're not pushing as much chloride, and chloride itself can be a cause of non-anion gap acidosis that can sometimes happen. Therefore, you know, it's really not worth fighting too much over it as as long as we. We know what, what we're doing. Um, I think in the beginning, when you're giving like fluids resuscitation, you want to use a 0.9 saline or a lactated ringer. But then as time goes, you can go down to the 0.45, especially as you're adding the potassium in the, in the fluids. The amount of fluids, like how do you calculate it? In general, I calculate as if they are 10% dehydration, but I do the correction of the 10% dehydration over 48 hours rather than over 24 hours. The, the idea is that this is, yes, a dehydration, but it's also a hyperosmolar dehydration because of the high glucose in it. And with hyperosmolar dehydration, people tend to correct a little bit more slowly. And there is a certain movement among pediatric endocrinologists where they worry about giving too much fluids too soon and, and they want to be a little bit slower at, at giving fluids. The, so that's related to the fluids, the amount and, and what's in there. The insulin, well, that's kind of a, a must eventually. The things about insulin is that we sometimes don't use it right away. We resuscitate with fluids like a normal saline bolus of some sort, and then we give we start the insulin. The reason for this is that um, by fluid expansion, volume expansion, the glucose may actually drop on its own. So if you give insulin on top of it, then you may have a much more rapid drop of the glucose than you have control over. So you'd rather give the fluids first for an hour or so and then start your insulin. And that way you know where your glucose after the fluids is and you measure it from there. If you're giving insulin by a drip, which is basically what we do in Birmingham, then the it is a set dose of insulin, which is 0.1 unit per kilogram per hour. And this, this applies to pediatrics and to adults, but not to go above 100 kilograms. So like if you're having someone weighing more than 100 kilos, then it will, your maximum is 100 kilo, which is like, you know, 10 units per hour or something like that. So, so that's, that's the insulin. Um, that amount of insulin that we're using is a much higher dose of insulin than what we usually do with people with regular diabetes, whether type 1 or type 2. And the reason for needing this high dose is with diabetic ketoacidosis, we are dealing with a situation of insulin resistance, and the insulin resistance requires more insulin to overcome it. And therefore, that's the dose of the 0.1 unit per kilo per hour. One of the teaching points that I think comes up a lot for us on the wards is why are we giving the insulin? And I always ask, when do we stop the insulin drip? Is the insulin, are we just giving it to bring down the glucose? Or is there something else that we're actually trying to address? The, so, so really the insulin, uh, it, it will bring down the glucose, but the most important thing and why we give it in an IV 
is to to correct the acidosis because the mainstay of correcting the acidosis is uh, using the insulin. And without using the insulin, the acidosis will come back. Um, the, uh, so, so in general, like, you know, again, going back to our peace process that we had at Children's Hospital of being on the same and on the same page, everybody, we decided that we can stop the insulin drip when the bicarb level is uh, above 15, for example, uh, and sometimes like about 17 or something like that. We have, a, and, and that's kind of the time when we stop the insulin drip. Now, the hardest part about stopping the insulin drip is uh, insulin has a very short half-life. And so it, the half-life is about seven minutes to 10 minutes. And so if you stop the insulin drip, you really want to give insulin subcutaneously either before you stop the drip or right at the time of stopping the drip. Because the moment you stop it, you have like half hour before you run out of insulin and therefore the process comes back. So so that's kind of uh, the the very important thing to remember is um, if you are stopping the drip, you have to give some subcutaneous insulin. Uh, one of the worries I I have is like when residents are afraid of hypoglycemia or blood sugars that are coming a little too low, and then they stop the drip because you know that's right. that's what they do. Uh, but then they have to think of what am I going to do within half hours to not get the ketones back. I so was I have, like, I just have sort of uh, two questions. One one follow up to this mm-hmm. one, then one to go back on something we talked about earlier. So. So you're saying about you know given the sub-Q insulin bef- before we actually transition off the drip, how how much insulin are we expected to be giving them? Because it sounds like when you're on the drip, we're on a much higher level of insulin than we normally would. How are we deciding on that first dose of sub-Q insulin that we're giving before we turn off the drip? Shut up. That's a good question. Um... Lordy, lordy, lordy. So, um, you know, there is a movement. Uh, I love this question. That's why I told you to shut up, you know. um, So so there is a movement in in the pediatric endocrinologist, perhaps like adult endocrinologist, is that we actually uh, can give a basal insulin at the time of presentation um, and and starting the insulin drip. So kind of like you give Lantus or Traceba or uh, Detamir. And and that way there is a base and and the dose is about 0.2 per kilo. And you give it that way, but you'll have to remember like if you're still on the drip 24 hours later, you you need to renew it. And what that basically, then it gives you your safety level of insulin and therefore you don't worry about stopping the drip whenever you want to stop it, then you have insulin there. Uh, but if you have not done that, uh, and, and so that's a, that's something we're doing in our hospital. Uh, now, if you haven't done that, then some would say you want to give the subcutaneous insulin an hour before you stop the drip. The um, others would say this can be confusing, you know, give it and wait and do this and do that. And I would say, no, you know, I'd rather, you know, risk it, but stop the drip, give the insulin, and move on. You know, so it's uh, it's kind of schools of thought. My preferred one is to give some long acting at the time of presentation, and therefore, you relax. Gotcha. I, so, as a resident, I got burned on this once where we stopped the insulin drip when the anion gap closed twice. And so I 
ordered for the insulin drip to be stopped and I started the long acting subcutaneous. And so they stopped the drip as soon as the order came in and they gave the subcutaneous insulin as soon as it came up from the pharmacy, which was about four to five hours later. Yeah. And we, uh, we rechecked and he reopened up and went back on the drip. Yes. So, lesson learned. Yeah, it's kind of like you have to see it before you get, like, you know, yeah. before you stop the drip. But, you know, we live and learn. So, so speaking about ketosis and the gap, now mm -hmm. you were talking that we, we give insulin to to really, you know, normalize the gap and, and improve the, the ketoacidosis, correct? So, mm -hmm. but there may be a time when you're giving insulin that your glucose may actually normalize or even go low. So mm -hmm. we do sometimes add dextrose to the fluid. Is that correct? And how do yeah, we yeah. how do we go about deciding when that's going to occur? Yeah. So so kind of there are two answers to that. Uh, so if the glucose is dropping on a per hour basis at more than 100 milligram per deciliter, then some people would say like maybe you need to use glucose when when it's dropping that fast or or more. And the other answer that like if the blood sugar is somewhere between 250 to 300 milligram per deciliter, then you can start adding the dextrose to the fluids. The, the first one, you know, if it's dropping more than 100 milligram per deciliter, the idea about it is that then your osmolarity in the blood is dropping a little too fast, but then the osmolarity in the brain doesn't drop that fast. And so you, you worry about, would that put you at risk of brain edema related to diabetic ketoacidosis? And that's why we may start it at higher than 300 at times. I always love uh, talking to the residents and be like, you want to give glucose to the patient with DKA? <laughs> I was like, no, no, yeah, you're right. You did good. <laughs> <laughs> you're so mean. <laughs> I want to ask, um, I know we, we've talked about two of the treatments, but I, the fluid management, I, I have to say, I'm big LR, very loyal mm -hmm. to LR. I think from adult yeah, literature yeah. is the major reason. But I know that there was a recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine about the cerebral edema component. And you mentioned that the DKA itself can be the risk factor. I know there used to be a thought that the fluid resuscitation is mm -hmm. uh, was what led to cerebral yeah, yeah. Is that still a thought or is that? Yeah, yeah. Lot? I mean, it, it definitely is a thought. Um, so the idea about it kind of like, you know, the rapid drop in osmolarity uh, um, and it, where it doesn't keep up in the brain and therefore fluids go inside the brain and, and will cause, you know, cerebral edema. And that certainly is understandable. And in and, and that is why we want to go with, uh, with an isotonic solution in the fluids. Um, and lactate drinker would be fine. Some people, there is a theoretical risk that lactate becomes sugar and kind of like, is that a problem? I mean, well, we're giving them insulin, so it's like, and that wouldn't bother me that much. But there is another risk for the cerebral edema, which is a capillary leak. And, and that's kind of where sometimes you may have it even before you start treatment. So what I wanted to basically emphasize is that, yes, we still stick with like, you know, not dropping the osmolarity too fast. But what we want to keep in mind is that the, um, maybe we still don't understand the causes of cerebral edema as much um, the, because it can present at presentation. Um, in some studies, what they found are associations with uh, cerebral edema. And one of them is, well, giving bicarbonate. Um, now the question is that because they're sicker and therefore, or is it because you gave them bicarbonate? And, and another one, which makes perfect sense, is um, that the rise in the sodium as the glucose is, is dropping is not keeping up. So, so kind of like the sodium is not rising as much. And therefore, th that goes with the, um, with the osmolarity story very well, though. 
As a quick follow-up on that, when would you consider giving bicarb for a patient with DJA? Oh, God. Oh, Lordy. Um, uh, well, I mean, if, if you're really, really worried about, like, there's shutdown of some other systems going on because of the acidosis, then I would give bicarbonate. Um, that's 6.9 um, uh, that, that of this patient. Um I, I would consider using it. I mean, if someone used it, I would not, I'm not going to go shout at them because, like, you know, I'm not in their in, in their shoes at the time. Um, but I may want to wait on it and just see what, what happens. Um, yeah, some, something below 6.9, um, you worry that it can be dangerous, the acidosis itself. So kind of speaking about these all these electrolyte abnormalities that can happen with DKA and potentially being a reason why DKA is so scary. What electrolyte abnormalities should we be looking out for? And then how often do we need to be checking mm -hmm. um, electrolyte panels on these patients? And does it, does it depend on how sick they are, like how severe the DKA is? Do we need to be checking more often versus yeah. not as much? So, so uh, I mean, at least like we have to check the electrolytes every four hours. Uh, my, um, But if you, the one I worry them a lot about is the potassium. Uh, and, and the reason for the potassium uh, as a worry for me is that oftentimes in diabetic ketoacidosis, they can present with high potassium, which may make us not want to give potassium because we're worrying about hyperkalemia and its own problems. But then once we start treating with the DKA, that potassium drops and it will go low. And, and so if I did not give them potassium, I probably will want to check their electrolytes probably every two hours or so, because I'm really afraid that they will hit hypokalemia and that can be very dangerous. And hypokalemia had been proven to be a bigger killer than hyperkalemia and diabetic ketoacidosis. Mm. But if I'm giving potassium and I'm giving all the electrolytes, then every four hours would be adequate you know, frequency of obtaining electrolytes. Talking about potassium, uh, so there are, um, again, you know, each hospital will decide uh, their policy of when to start potassium in the drip. Um, oftentimes they would say, like, you know, you want it to be below 5.5 or something like that. In general, some absolute rules is that you don't want to give potassium if you have EKG abnormality uh, happening or if you have no urine output. Um, those are your absolute contraindications to giving potassium. Others can be contraindications, but not absolute. So we talked about how type 1 diabetes is usually what we see DKA associated with most. Um, but I've seen a lot of stuff in the literature about type 2 diabetes that are ketosis prone, or another term being flatbush. Can you kind of just talk about what that is and then how does it differ than the normal DKA that we associate with type 1 diabetes? Yeah. So, so kind of like traditionally... Um, and, and that kind of now bothers me a little bit, like when we say someone came with DKA, therefore it is type 1 diabetes. Not necessarily. Um, the, although, like, you know, because the population is getting heavier, um, you can have a person with type 1 diabetes who is heavy at presentation. So they're, they don't necessarily have to be skinny at presentation uh, and have type 1 diabetes. But type 2 diabetes the, uh, is a little sneaky So uh, because type 2 had been present for a longer period of time uh, and silence. So, so, th so that's one thing. And the DKA that happens with type 2 diabetes 
probably had been DKA for a longer period of time than someone with type 1 diabetes that comes in with it. And so the, the risk factors, they, so they have some additional risk factors, is that their phosphorus can be at higher risk of being very low. And, uh, and when their phosphorus is very low, they're at risk of having rhabdomyolysis with it. So, so when it's someone that I suspect type 2 diabetes and comes with diabetic ketoacidosis, I really pay close attention to their phosphorus, try to support it. And I also will check, you know, for any evidence of rhabdomyolysis in them, because if they have it and I didn't check it, it may end up shutting their kidneys and, you know, having lots of other complications. Seems to be that DKA happening more with males than females. So we're still trying to understand the genetics of it, or, or is there a particular subgroup of people that have it versus others? So another type of DKA I'm hearing about is this sir, euglycemic DKA. So this mm. the serif is a little different and we didn't used to have this type of DKA. Can you explain a little bit about that? So um the way I understand it is that uh, one of the newer medications for treatment of type 2 diabetes are the what we call SGL2 receptor inhibitors. And those SGL2 inhibitors are uh, great new medications for treatment of type 2 because the way they work is you lower the threshold for losing glucose in the urine, and therefore they can lower your average glucose level without adding that much uh, effect. So people with type 1 diabetes who are very savvy and very uh, computer conscious and all that stuff discovered those medications and started saying, well, you know, I'm really trying to get my A1C to 5 or like 5.5 or 5.8 but it's so difficult to do it with the way I'm doing it. Maybe I can add an SGL2 inhibitor in my regimen. So people with type, type 1 diabetes started using those medications. And what happened is that then they started having lower blood sugars. And by having lower blood sugars, they started decreasing their insulin doses gradually until they actually crossed the threshold that can get them into DKA, but without having high blood sugars, which basically put the doctors in the emergency rooms in a crazy place, you know, because you're expecting to have DKA with high blood sugars, but then they have ketones and they have DKA, but the, the glucose is not high. Uh, so, so that's really uh, particular to that risk of having that diabetic ketoacidosis with the use of those medications that are becoming more and more popular. So because of this, the advice is to try to avoid those medications, but if you are to use them, you have to teach the patient to be very, very, very vigilant in um, not getting into ketosis if they're using those medications and they have type 1 diabetes. And some still do, some, some people use it, um, but, and, and you know, they'll have to be very careful. So if we're taking care of this this type of euglycemic DKA in the in the hospital, this one that you would automatically just start on insulin drip and a, a dextrosin-containing fluid at the same time then? Yes. You want to give sugar to the patient with diabetes? Well, you have to give sugar to people. Calm down. Yeah. I, I shouldn't get you guys. Shut up. <laughs> so I, I have a question. With type 1 diabetes, the pancreas isn't working. It's not producing insulin. But we have now continuous glucose monitors to constantly check glucose. We have insulin pumps to constantly provide insulin based on 
glucoses. This sounds like we have it figured out. What What's the story about the artificial pancreas or, or other technology? Have we, Are we about to cure type 1 diabetes before this episode comes out? Uh, not not before this episode comes out, but um, but certainly we have some really very good tools. Um, and uh, yeah, like you know, there are two pumps that use the continuous glucose monitors in having what we call a closed loop system. Um, it's not yet perfect because the the continuous glucose monitors are not completely um, risk free, and uh, and and that was actually. Although the, the continuous glucose monitor technology was present, pre, had been present for a few years, it took some time to get that closed loop system. The reason for this was how to, if, it, if you have a system that's, um, the, that's not planned very well, that's not planned very well, then you'll get a continuous glucose monitor that sees high blood sugar, sends the message to the pump, the pump keeps on bolusing and bolusing and bolusing. And the next thing, the patient is in decay. So, uh, so those systems had to be done in a way where uh, the system discovers that there is something wrong and kicks out of that that closed loop system, and and tells you that you need to do something. And so, the way those systems are working now is, um, if your blood sugar is too high and it and the system is not understanding it, their computer, their algorithm then it kicks out of that closed loop system. It breaks, it breaks that, that pathway and tells the patient, you're now on manual mode. You need to manage your diabetes. And if a patient receives that message, um, well, sometimes they respond to it, sometimes they don't, then what that means, they have to give themselves insulin by injection, change the pump site, and pay close attention to what happens to their blood sugars. Uh, so, no, we haven't yet... Um, Cured diabetes, but um, but it's exciting time. Uh, it's uh, certainly uh, exciting, and it's becoming even more and more exciting. Kind of switching gears a little bit in type one diabetes, type two, all types of diabetes, as well as patients who specifically present in DKA. Are there disparities um, that exist, kind of, in this patient population? Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, diabetes is expensive in, in taking care of it. And diabetes requires uh, a certain level of so sophistication, not a lot, but, but, you know, you have to know how to calculate doses, how to calculate uh, insulin, how to be vigilant about, you know, troubleshooting and all that stuff. And you have to have really good close contact with your physician. So if you're having any of those factors not present, which certainly happens in, in, in disadvantaged communities, then, then your risk of getting into DKA becomes higher because like either because of uh, barriers to care. You know, um, we've heard like over the last two years about people that were trying to ration their use of insulin and they end up with DKA and, uh, and with, with, with that. So if you're uninsured, uh, insulin is, is, becoming more expensive. And although you can buy insulin, what we call regular insulin, over the counter, and it would be relatively cheap, but that's not our preferred form of insulin to use. And that may not prevent diabetic ketoacidosis. So, so the, the expense of buying insulin, the, the sophistication of the system, and it's becoming more and more sophisticated, 
and therefore puts people who need much closer attention to teaching them uh, and 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 more follow up and stuff like that puts them at higher risk that you know they may not keep up with it not that they don't have the ability they do but it needs more work on our side in alabama um, the continuous glucose monitors were not approved uh, until just recently to people with Medicaid, um, unless they do have history of low blood sugar. So continuous glucose monitors are rapidly becoming a standard of care. And uh, and if there is a certain insurance program that does not pay for it, then uh, that's a big disparity because that means the poor cannot have it. Um, So it's certainly very complicated. The other part that sometimes... I worry about is an issue of, you know, someone who's not in in great control of their diabetes, like, do we judge them? And therefore, are we unconsciously or implicitly biased against them in one way or another? And we'll have to check our own implicit biases. Now, um, there was a, there were some articles in the New York Times from a good number of years back. It's disparities from a different angle, uh, disparities in care between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And, and in those articles, they suggested, the New York Times, that the population with type 1 diabetes has better in general access to care than people with type 2 diabetes. And they also have a stronger element of advocacy and activism and, uh, you know, movement towards, you know, helping themselves than the population with type 2 diabetes. Um, and and statistically speaking, type 2 diabetes is associated with higher levels of poverty and, and uh, lack of presence of grocery stores close by or fresh food around us and all that stuff. Yeah, and kind of speaking to that, these are probably just my biases speaking But in my short amount of training, I often think just gut reaction to DKA, this was a failure of their current diabetes regimen, or this was a failure of their current diabetes plan. Um, And I often think of, you know, why did it fail? What were the socioeconomic things happening behind Mm -hmm. the scenes as as to why um, they're, they're ended up in DKA. Do we always need to be, you know, thinking about that in the back of our minds and getting social work involved or getting child life involved to like really address those factors? And then what goes on in those, those meetings with, with social work or child life? So child life, I think uh, a big thing like for them is, are we dealing with needle phobia, which is uh, like a big factor uh, and, and can present in about 30% of people with diabetes. So so child life would be to look into that issue, try to find ways to uh, mitigate it and, and make it easier and, and more accepting of taking insulin. Or if that can, doesn't work, then we'll have to kind of sometimes, you know, find if there's needle phobia in one of the adults that are taking care of the child. And if the adult is having needle phobia, then they're not really good at giving the injection or they they put too early responsibility and too soon on a child that's incapable or not yet ready to take that responsibility. Uh, So that's, um, that to me is like the big thing with child life. Um, With the social workers, I mean, we we do have uh, a good number of families related to your question where 
the mother works two jobs uh, and it's a single mother who has several kids. And, and so kind of like she will have to depend on a grandmother who may have vision problems to give the insulin at home when the mother is not at home or on, on an older child who may have other interests and stuff like that. So it's, uh, we, have to, we have to be understanding of those limitations of life and and, uh, and and lack of support system that can happen in many families that, that we're not aware of. Uh, and the COVID uh, actually ends up challenging it. Uh, we do depend on school nurses to give the long-acting insulin, and therefore that would be uh, a protector against, um, you know, having DKA, like, you know, the school nurse gives it. Now, with COVID, there's many schools, you're staying at home, therefore you, you're back to, to, to home management. And then the parent is oftentimes a, an essential worker that has to go work and, and the child is left at home. So it's complicated. Thank you so much. It's been such a wonderful time to talk to you for, for a second time. We've learned so much from you, and it's it's just been fantastic. Thank you again for sharing time with us. Oh, God, it's fun. It's, you guys are fun. In, in kind of a summary, for, for listeners who are going to be taking care of patients with DKA, what are some of the big takeaway points? Oh, God. If you have type 2 diabetes, you can have diabetic ketoacidosis. So, so, so it's just because you have type 2, you can have DKA. The other one and we didn't talk much about it, is that young kids who are younger than one or two years old can also come with DKA. And those can be really challenging in discovering them because we don't think people that young can have diabetes and they, and they do. And, and the same thing, I, I guess, is that people who are adults can also get DKA. And, and, and so kind of like we don't assume that type 1 diabetes doesn't occur in adults because it can happen at any age. And so uh, for those who are taking care of adult patients, uh, keep your eyes open that DKA does happen in adult populations. Great. Anything you'd like to, to plug or any resources uh, or bread recipes that we should share with the listeners? The, the only thing I would say that I learned is that even at my old age, trying something new that I've never tried before is a very big boost to my ego. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good tip. It's a good tip to leave on. Yes. Excellent. Anything else that you would like to plug? Any resources or anything? I, I think I would say I, I want to thank my partners. Uh, and I'm going to mention their name, Mary Lauren Scott and Jessica Schmidt, who are pushing our office to use more and more continuous glucose monitors and who uh, successfully uh, lobbied Medicaid in Alabama to approve the use of continuous glucose monitors uh, in kids with Medicaid. So I appreciate their work and their efforts. Amazing. Very inspirational. Maybe other states can, can follow suit. And Mary Lauren Scott is a MedPeds doctor. Oh, good people then. Shut up. We'll see you at the next This is great. Adjulatif, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I mean, this was wonderful as always, and I learned a lot, and I think the listeners are going to appreciate it, and we, we really love having you. So thank you so much for, for taking your time. Thank you for having me. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list, Knowledge Food Formula Feeds, to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. 
We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any app where you download podcasts. Also, you can send us an email, thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our wonderful producer for this episode, Shannon Snellgrove. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. I've been Shannon Snellgrove. And this has been Chris the Chiman Chu. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode. 